So like I say, we're in Psalm 67 this morning. So if I could ask you to turn there with me right now, and we'll read it together. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now this psalm begins like many other psalms, and indeed it begins perhaps like many of our own prayers do. Because what we see as the psalm opens up here, the psalmist opens up here, is he's asking for God to bless his people. He's asking God to pour out his grace, his undeserved favor upon them. And this is always a good thing for us to be praying. God is our creator. So by design, we are dependent upon him for everything. And just as those of us who are parents like to do with our children, God, our father, our perfect father, he loves to give us good gifts. As we read in James 1 verse 17, it says this, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. I love that phrase, no variation or shadow of change. God is totally consistent. He is always wanting to hear the desires of our hearts. He's not like a human pa- uh, father, like, like myself, where one day I'll, I'll, my children, they'll say, can I, daddy, daddy, can I have an ice cream? And I'll, I'll buy it for them. And then the next day they'll say, daddy, daddy, can I have an ice cream? And I'll just be irritated that they've asked me because I'm inconsistent. I'm not a perfect father, but God is the perfect loving father. And we should be dependent upon him for all things, which is why this is a good way to always start our prayers. In fact, it's when we seek independence from God, when we try to kind of forge our own way, or when we seek to bring glory to ourselves, it's then that things go awry. So like I say, every time that we pray, it's good to start remembering that we are dependent upon him, recognizing our need for him, and asking for more of his grace, asking him for more of his blessing, because he loves to lavish it upon us. However, where this psalmist turns, where this psalm maybe turns from what we may ordinarily pray or what we may ordinarily expect is in verse 2, where we read the reason for the psalmist wanting blessing upon God's people. Let's just read those first two verses again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, in some ways, I think this is a little bit surprising on first read. How often do you pray this, that God would bless us, not primarily because of the joy 
that it brings us, which of course it does, and God's blessing is designed to bring us joy. But in this instance, the psalmist is praying for blessing primarily for the purpose of God's way, for the purpose of God's saving power, ultimately primarily for God himself to be known by those that don't yet know him. That said, the fact that we should, the fact that we are called to pray in this way shouldn't really be a surprise to us. When God called Abraham or or Abram, as he was at the time, as the first patriarch of Israel in the Old Testament, we read this in Genesis 12, the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's amazing, isn't it? Ever since God has called his peoples to himself, this has been the purpose. This has been the mission of God's people, the family of God, to bring blessing to the whole earth, to all peoples. And then just jumping forward again, we see how this will culminate in a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, we read this from verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a beautiful, this is an incredible picture of what heaven will be like. People from all nations, tribes and languages, tongues, gathered together, worshipping Jesus. And of course, this is only possible if we, the church, the people of God, take the blessing of God that can only be found in the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to all the ends of the earth. Just as Jesus himself instructed us in the Great Commission. So now, looking at Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what we are called to do. This is our mission, to proclaim the name, to proclaim the truths of Jesus, both to those around us and to the ends of the earth. So of course, our prayers, our songs should reflect this. And as this is in accordance with God's will, as we, as we pray, we find that God will stir within us a passion to do this even more, a deeper passion to see him glorified in this way through the reaching of the nations, through the reaching of unreached people, which will lead us 
naturally into action, into taking the gospel of Jesus into the world to those who are as yet unreached. So what can we learn from this psalm about how we are to pray powerful missional prayers? Well, when we break this psalm down, we see, I think, that there are three things that the psalmist is praying for that the world, that those who don't know Jesus so desperately need. And the first of these things is light. Let's read again verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. This prayer that the psalmist is praying here is for God to illuminate the truth of Jesus' saving power, of God's saving power to all the earth. And as we've seen already this morning, by the incredible grace, the incredible blessing of God, it is our mission as church to do this. And we're called to do this in two ways. Firstly, we're called to do this by pointing to Jesus. We read in John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. So we are called to focus all attention on him. And secondly, we do this as a church, as church, by imitating Jesus and by being the light to the world around us. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 say this. You, and this is Jesus talking to the church, to the disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we're to tell people about the truth and the light of Jesus, and we are to do this by sharing the gospel, and we're to show people the truth and the light of Jesus by living lives that reflect this. And I think it's easy, you know, I've been reading this and praying on this the last few weeks. I go, of course, I can completely agree with this. And I nod along to myself as I'm speaking now. This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. But when the rubber hits the road, sometimes we fail to actually do it. So we need to ask the question, why is it sometimes so difficult to do this? Well, ultimately, I think it's because we fail to see the truth that the world is in darkness. When I go to bed, I'm one of those people that likes it really, really, really dark, like really dark which can be quite the source of of tension between me and Tash, because if she had her way, we'd have all the lights on, curtains would be open, doors would be open throughout the house, probably have the air conditioning on as well, why not? We've got enough money. Maybe even a disco ball in the corner. 
That's the way Tash would like to go to sleep. But for me, I want the blackout blinds closed. I want, I want every door in the house shut for some reason because I don't want kind of chinks of light creeping through into my bedroom. I'd probably, I thought about getting, you know, one of the sleep masks that make it completely dark. But I'm a bit concerned that if I do this, Tash might turn the lights on and I'll never know. So I won't do that. But I don't want to risk it. I'm digressing anyway. No matter how dark I get the room, even if Tasha's gone out, she stayed somewhere else, and I get the room as dark as I can, no matter how dark that room gets, within about a minute, I can start to make out silhouettes in the room. I can start to see what's going on. Over time, I can see more and more. So after maybe 15 minutes, I can pretty much see everything in the room, albeit dimly. My eyes have become accustomed to the lack of light. And the same can be true of our spiritual lives. We are surrounded by spiritual darkness. And unless we are regularly going into the light, unless we are regularly entering into the presence of Jesus, we no longer see the darkness for what it is. It becomes normal to us. We are consistently fed the lie that our ultimate fulfillment will be found in our health, in our wealth, in our happiness. So much so that it is easy to become slaves of trying to get down to a certain weight or earning enough money to ensure that, that, that we're secure, that our family is secure or, or, or spending our days daydreaming of our next holiday. Whatever, if we start to seek our joy or our security in anything other than Jesus, then when we look around us and we see people that don't even know him are earning more money than us, are in better physical shape than us, are seemingly having more fun than us, then it's no surprise that we fail to see the truth that apart from Jesus, they are living in darkness. The result being, we don't share the gospel because we think the people that we know don't need to hear it. Heck, we may even think they've got it, to be, got it together better than we have. Because look how well they're doing. If this is how you're thinking this morning, then you have been blinded by darkness. You're not seeing the truth of the gospel as the ultimate blessing towards us. Because it is only through the gospel, it is only through the truth that Jesus died in our place to rescue us from our sin. It's only in this that we can be reconciled to God. Nothing else can do this. Nothing that the world has to offer can achieve that ultimate prize. So if you're in this place this morning, if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're struggling to live in a way that reflects the gospel, if you're caught in the snare of things that the world has to offer, and believe me, this is going to be all of us at some point, what is it that we need to do? Well, the antidote to darkness is always light. Just as when Tash has had enough of my weird sleeping obsessions, eventually goes, I'm opening the curtains tonight, we're sleeping with the light on. This is what we need to do. We need to turn towards the light. We need to confess our sin. And again, in awe and wonder, we need to immerse ourselves in his word and in prayer and in worship so that we can see and we can feel the truths of Jesus' abundant grace and mercy towards us. And as we do this, as we expose ourselves to the white-hot light of Jesus, 
we will bring glory to him as the world sees the impact of his face shining upon us, just as we read here in the opening verses of Psalm 67. So that is the first thing. Let's join with the psalmist in praying that as God shines his light upon us, that this would be seen and known by all those who have yet to, who have yet to know him that we come in contact with. That this very light that these people so badly need to extinguish the darkness in their lives would be seen. Okay, so the second thing that we see in this psalm that the world desperately needs from God is joy. Let's read verses 3 to 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now we read here in Psalm 4 that the psalmist wants the nations to be glad. He wants them to be singing with joy. And I think that is the cry of all of our hearts, isn't it? It's what we're all seeking for. We want to be glad and we want to be full of joy. But so often, we can seek to fill this longing with temporary pleasures, with with food or sex or alcohol or or in a relationship, none of which are are bad things if they're sought in ways that are not sinful, if they're sought in ways that bring honor to God, bring glory to God. But the problem is, when we seek after these things as our ultimate satisfaction, then that is when we will encounter problems because what we're doing is we're putting these things in the place of God effectively we're making them idols so what is the source of this joy well I think it's found in the verses that sandwich verse four which is a kind of strange way of saying verses three and five both of which repeat the phrase let the peoples praise you O God let all the peoples praise you and sometimes we can be tempted. I know I can be tempted. I have been tempted to ask the question, isn't that a bit strange that God so often seems so keen to be praised? Is that a bit of an unusual thing? Because we can picture God and, and think of him as, as like a person, but a little bit better. And it can make us wonder if this is an undesirable attribute that God has. Indeed, if you ever meet a person that demands praise then to say the least, they're normally at least a little bit unpleasant to be around. And it can lead us to asking the question, why does God desire, why does he require so much praise? Is is God maybe kind of insecure? Or worse still, is God a kind of egomaniac? Is that what's going on? Well, the author C.S. Lewis addresses this in this quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. God does not want us to praise him to fulfill a hole in his ego, or to plaster over his insecurities. 
That's absurd. When we praise God, it is to bring the greatest happiness to us. Just as we see in these middle verses of the psalm, our joy is sandwiched between the praise and worship of God. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? I'm I'm a soccer fan and I support a a team called Tottenham Hotspurs. And when we're rifling goal after goal after goal against our rivals, Arsenal or Liverpool, then I don't sit there silently just kind of taking it in. I don't sit there unemotional. I jump around and I cheer and I get excited because when I express my praise towards my team who have scored these goals, who have won these games, my joy is increased. My happiness at winning is increased. If I didn't act like this, then there would definitely be a sense that my joy in victory is incomplete. Does that make sense? So it stands to reason then, if God loves us enough to make our joy full, that he would desire, that he would require true heartfelt praise. As I've said, not to stroke his ego or to cover over insecurities, but because he loves us, he knows that our fullness of joy is only found in knowing and in praising him. And this is true because he is the only one who is worthy of our praise. We just read, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. He is just and he is good. He is over and he is above all things. So of course we should praise him. In fact, in order for God to love us as fully as is possible, he must demand our praise. John Piper puts it like this. God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is is the ultimately loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things to the praise of his glory, he preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in the world that can satisfy our longings. This is amazing, isn't it? When we praise God, we experience the ultimate joy that our hearts are looking for. Which is why the psalmist is praying that all the peoples would praise God because they desperately need the joy that can only be found in doing so. So let's join with the psalmist in praying that Jesus would be praised by every nation, every tongue and every tribe and that they would receive that joy that could only be known from doing so. And at the same time, as we do, If we ourselves have noticed that we've grown cold towards God, let's also set our own hearts on praising Jesus, knowing that it is in him and it is in him alone that we can find fullness of joy. So these are the first two things that the psalmist highlights that the world needs. We need light and the world needs joy. Then the third thing, can be found in these final two verses, verses 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Okay, so before we dive into what these verses are saying, it's worth noting that up until this point, 
the author is praying and he, he, to God and he, he's, he's looking to the future. And as he does so, he's, he's saying this, things like, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. So he's, he's looking towards the future about what God is going to do. Yet here, you notice the tense changes. So he's starting to talk about something that's seemingly been accomplished in the past. He says this, the earth has yielded its increase. So before it's looking towards what's going to happen, and then the earth has yielded its increase. So, so what is the author referring to when he talks about the earth yielding its increase? Well, firstly, the word increase is the word used in, in the ESV translation, but it's probably more helpfully worded as harvest, as we read in the NIV version. In other words, the, the, the earth has yielded its crops. The earth has yielded its produce. Now, some commentators suggest that this psalm was likely to be sung at the end of harvest, where Israel were looking out and they were seeing how God had blessed them as the yield has increased. And this is what they're referring to. They've seen that, that God has, has given them an increase in terms of their harvest. The conclusion being, God has blessed us, therefore we can have confidence in him. Now, I think that's a very likely um, scenario as to what this is referring to. Because of the context, I, I think I'm more persuaded towards um, the idea that actually this, because the psalm is, is looking forward, it's building towards God is, go God is going to do, I would interpret this personally as more of a prophetic statement. So it's grounded in the psalmist's confidence that God will act on his promises, which as we looked at this morning began with Genesis 12, specifically where he promised uh, to use Israel to bless the whole earth. But actually, whichever way we understand this out of the two possibilities, the point is the same, that we can have confidence, we can have assurance that God will bring his plans into fruition. So accordingly, we can have confidence as we pray to God. No matter the outward appearance of the situation, we know that God will always act on all promises of Scripture, that God will always yield an increase, which of course is, is highly encouraging to those of us who are found in Christ, because it means regardless of our current situation, we can know that we are loved by him, we are held by him, we are in the most secure place that we can possibly be. Ultimately, we can know assurance of our eternal salvation. But more so in the context of the scripture that we're examining today, as we look at the, the many, many problems and atrocities going on in the world, it can be tempting to despair. But actually, we can confidently proclaim that God will cause the peoples to praise him. He will cause the nations to be glad. And we can do so as if he already has done. That is how sure our assurance, our confidence can be. It's easy to look around, isn't it, and say, in my office, in my town, in that nation that's, that's 5,000 miles away, they will never receive the gospel because it stands against everything that they put their hope in. How can that be possible? But here we see that we can pray boldly, we can pray confidently for the advancement 
of his kingdom. And because his promises are sure, because his promises are steady, we can stand firm in full assurance of his future glory. And as we read in this psalm, we can know that he will answer this prayer and that he will bring increase, a harvest of believers from all corners of the earth. As we read, let all the ends of the earth fear him through the preaching of the gospel, which I think shows us the third thing that the psalmist is praying for that the world needs, and that is a harvest, a harvest of new life. And that new life can only come from Jesus. If we look at 1 Corinthians 3 verses 5 to 9, it says this, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, so the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plant, he, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Like Paul, our role is to plant seeds by proclaiming the truths of the gospel. And like Apollos, our role is to water those seeds by caring for and reinforcing these truths to those that are seeking after him. But we cannot bring about new life. Not one of us in this room. Only Jesus can do this, which is why we must pray along with the psalmist in yearning for this harvest of new life. And in God's incredible kindness, and this is one beautiful thing about this psalm, we see this harvest is tied to blessing. So in verses 1 and 2, we see where, by way of reminder, it's, it says that the ultimate purpose of God's blessing is mission. Let's just read it again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. We now see here, in verses 6 and 7, we see that the blessing actually is the harvest, The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. So it's kind of a a cyclical process. Bless us so that you will become known among all the earth. Resultantly, there will be a harvest of people from all nations who come to know you. And this harvest of people receiving new life from Jesus will then bring us greater blessing which will mean more people will see Jesus' glory and more people will worship him. And this will go on and on and on until he returns. If we grasp this, it will radically change the way we view and we think about missions. When we reach unreached people groups with the gospel, the church becomes more like the vision of of Revelation chapter 7 that we read earlier. We move closer to God's design for his people, bringing more glory to God and bringing more blessing to us, which brings more glory to God, which brings more blessing to us. I could go on, but you get the point, don't you? And here and now, we have a unique opportunity in this part of the world to reach the unreached. There are over 200 nationalities living in Abu Dhabi. 
many of which come from nations where the gospel isn't freely available. Indeed, it's estimated that there's some 20 to 25 people groups represented here in Abu Dhabi that have no access to the gospel at all. They are from places that are truly unreached peoples. Now, if these people come to faith here in Abu Dhabi and they move back to their homes with the gospel, then God is using them. God is using us to fulfill his great commission to make disciples of all nations, which the psalmist is praying for here. And I'm sure many of you will agree, one of the greatest joys, one of the greatest pleasures we can experience is seeing somebody come to know Christ, some to come to faith in Christ, receiving new life, being baptized, following him. It's, it's an amazing thing to see. It's an amazing thing to be part of. Now imagine the joy, imagine the blessing we would know if we start seeing this happening with people who are from unreached people groups. And imagine how much greater that joy and that blessing will be as we hear stories from them, maybe after they've moved back to their hometown or to their home village, and they've started to share the good news of Jesus with the people around them. I can't think of anything, I don't think, that would be more exciting than this. What a privilege it is that we have here in Abu Dhabi to, to have this opportunity to serve God in this way. But we must remember, this is a mission. We don't just kind of fall into missions. You can't just be cracking on in your life and be, ah, oh, I'm on a mission. When you, 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 you've got to be intentional We've all seen films, haven't we? You go on a mission. We're called to go. So for this mission to happen, we must be prepared, we must equip ourselves, and we must act. We must regularly carve out time to pray that God would move, that he would be saving lost souls. He would be reaching the unreached. Yeah, let's make that part of our daily prayer routines. And we need to daily prioritize time in worship. We need to daily prioritize time in his word so that we are keeping sight of Jesus for who he really is. So that our eyes do not become accustomed to darkness so that we fail to see the eternal ramifications of what God is calling us to do. And we need to mobilize. The psalmist uses the words us or our six times in these short seven verses. This is not a one-man mission. You are not Jack Bauer or James Bond or Jason Bourne or anyone else whose initials begin with JB. We are called on a mission together as the people of God. And one of the key ways that we seek to be equipped and share the gospel here at Grace Church is through our home groups. So if you're a home group leader, again, be gripped by this vision so that you can encourage and so that you can lead your people in this direction. And if you're part of home group, be involved. Don't just attend on the evenings that you've had a good day. Be committed and contribute. It will be a blessing to you. It will be a blessing to those that are in your group. And ultimately, as we've seen here, it is for the purpose of blessing those who don't yet know Jesus. And if you're not yet part of a home group, I've got some good news. There is no better day than today to join one. We've got groups based in all parts of the city and mainly we're meeting via Zoom at the moment. But the purpose of bringing, sorry, 
Uh, but we're hopeful that that will change soon. We're hopeful, we're praying that we'll be able to meet in person soon. Indeed, if you want to join a home group and you're not already part of one, then please speak to myself or one of the elders or, or one of the welcome team or drop an email to welcome at gracechurchabudabi.com. We would love to have you joining us on this mission to bring blessing to all the ends of the earth. So Grace Church, let's join this morning with the psalmist in praying that God would use us here in Abu Dhabi and wherever he calls us to next, to share the gospel in order to bring light, to bring joy, and to bring life to those who don't yet know him. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you that you have called us onto this mission, to your mission, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would use us to illuminate the truths of the gospel to those around us here in Abu Dhabi, and to the ends of the earth, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would know the joy of loving and serving and worshipping you, Lord, and that we would bring that joy again to the world that so desperately needs it. Help us, Lord, to grasp the truth that true satisfaction is found in you and you alone. And Lord, as we grasp onto that, help us, Lord, to share that, Lord, that that joy would be known by peoples of all tribes, tongues, and nation. And Lord, we pray that you would bring a harvest of new life here in Abu Dhabi, Lord. And as we disperse, as we go back to our home countries and towns or wherever you're calling us to next, Lord, that you would be producing a harvest of new life. In Jesus' name, amen.